The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Over you simply find out you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend Dr. Peter Hammonds. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you, yes, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And what Peter has for us today is a very timely presentation entitled The Real Story of Terrorism in the Middle East. So, where would you like to start us off today, Peter? Well, it's absolutely extraordinary, this hideous terror attack in the Middle East, and exactly 50 years after the surprise attack that led to the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and just as the deal of the century was about to be finalized between Israel and Saudi Arabia as a common front against Iran, a series of vicious surprise terrorist attacks by Hamas derailed the peace accord and the planned normalization agreement and ensured an intensified war. And... That's extraordinary because Israel does have the most sophisticated security system on the world, probably the greatest surveillance society with massive amounts of intelligence. For Mossad to have been fooled on the 50th anniversary of the worst surprise attack in Israel's history, the Yom Kippur War, when they have the main Sabbath, and in fact it's the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar, uh, the Day of Atonement, and when they are at minimum mobilization, when they on maximum holiday, uh, it's a time that you would expect an attack, actually, if you were in a country in the situation that they're in. But we've got some intriguing stories, and I just came across a report yesterday um, on Brighton, uh, uh, Brighton, yes, and uh, they had a News report there on Netanyahu ordered the Israeli military to stand down during the Hamas invasion. And that was quite shocking. But here's another intriguing one that is from um, Blacklisted News um, and uh, Pearl Harbor Gulf Edition coming soon, where they um, have an article by Gavin O'Reilly claiming that um, as the Al Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas, launched Operation Al. Asqua flood, the largest military incursion into the state of Israel since the Yom Kippur War of 1973, on the 50th anniversary of that October 73 war. Um, they um, incredibly, many people are saying, how is this possible that Israel could possibly be taken by surprise by militant Palestinian groups 
um, when they spend billions of dollars in state-of-the-art surveillance equipment, and they've got the greatest surveillance equipment in the world. But what's also intriguing is, according to Associated Press, um, Egyptian intelligence warned Tel Aviv repeatedly that an escalation of the war with Hamas was imminent, and these warnings uh, were ignored. So two separate reports, one from the New York Times, another from CNN on Friday, outlined warnings given by U.S. intelligence officials to Israel in days prior to the attack. Hamas is preparing a large-scale operation. And uh, so Egypt warned them twice. U.S. military intelligence warned them at least twice. Massive uh, escalation expected. So some people are saying, what is possible here? What could be happening? And uh, the background, according to the Breitbart News and Blacklisted News, is that the political career of Netanyahu was mired in a corruption scandal and... uh, there was a lot of hostility against him, which seems to have disappeared now um, following the Hamas attacks. And uh, there's a suspicion that the State of Israel may have used the Al-Aqsa operation as a pretext to carry out the ethnic cleansing of Gaza, and there seems to be strong evidence to back it up. Um, the Israeli Defense Minister, Yoav Gallant, has announced a complete siege of Gaza, cutting off food, water, electricity, supplies, to the besieged strip and describing the enemy combatants as animals and uh, with real talk about, you know, going to wipe them out and so on. And it was envisaged by Israeli Minister Orich Strzok in March of this year where he said uh, they need to basically um, have an, in- an incident that will justify a complete total war against Gaza and annihilation of the Palestinian problem sort of final solution to Palestinian problem kind of idea. So this is all in this um, blacklisted news uh, on Pearl Harbor Gulf edition coming, where they are saying that it's strong possibility that this is like 9-11 was for America being used, planned even, to be able to uh, justify massive, massive mobilization of hostility against um, uh, not just the Palestinian threat, but Iran as well, and as Iran is a thousand kilometers um, away from Israel, to launch any airstrike against the Islamic Republic of Iran means traveling to hostile airspaces of Syria and Iraq, which would be almost impossible without the assistance of the United States and its allies, which leads to the possibility which people are saying, is this possible that the goal here is to lead to an escalation of the war? And that ties in with something else I saw intriguingly, and that is, the Chinese Communist Party um, has, as we know, an alliance with Hamas, and the Chinese Communist Party is the biggest funder of Iran. In fact, Iran receives, uh, has received already $80 billion of revenue from oil sales, with China, Red China, purchasing one and a half million barrels of oil per day from Iran. So China's biggest source of oil is Iran, so Iran is being funded to a large extent, by Red China. So here's the intriguing thing. We've got the U.S. government of President Joe Biden claiming we have Israel's back. Israel uh, can depend on us. But he's even sent an aircraft carrier into the eastern Mediterranean, the Gerald Ford aircraft carrier, I believe. And although and that's got a potential of escalating the conflict, if something happens, say America gets attacked 
if their fleet gets attacked, they might get sucked into the war. And you start to think USS Liberty, 1967, uh, possible false flags, and who knows what else could happen there. But um, the US president claims that Israel is supported by America fully. And it's true, America supplies you know, uh, Israel with over $3.6 billion of high-tech weaponry every year and lots of billions of dollars of other kinds of aid and trade, not to mention what Germany gives them um, in, in billions of euros. But the United States of America is also funding those who are funding the Hamas terrorists. So US President Biden released $6 billion to Iran. Iran has supplied uh, Hamas with $1.8 billion, billion, billion with a B, $1.8 billion has been supplied by Iran to Hamas. And Iranian advisors are helping to train Hamas fighters. And the Chinese Communist Party is funding um, the um, Iranians who are funding Hamas as well. And the Chinese Communist Party recently formed an alliance with Hamas and met with the top leader of Hamas and called it the um, most important strategic alliance and intriguing that China also has brought forth a four-front war uh, theory with the United States. Chinese Communist Party at a strategy meeting has announced years ago already that they need to embroil the United States of America in a four-front war. And their logic is the United States is the enemy ideologically, economically, and every other way, militarily. And so um, they said America needs to be defeated by many different approaches, including economic warfare, using pandemics and many things along that line. And that's all part of the um, asymmetrical warfare and total warfare uh, strategy. But when America has had two fronts, two enemies, they've been distracted. And so that helps. Once you add a third enemy in, then they get very confused. Um, and so a four-front war is critical. And the Chinese Communist Party has said, they need to embroil America in a four-front war, and one of those fronts must be with a terrorist organization. So it's not enough that America's embroiled in a war in Ukraine with Russia, um, but to get them involved in another war, maybe with China, perhaps with Hamas, um, and if they can be sucked into maybe a war with Iran, uh, it would be very hard for them to focus on any one side. The moment you've got to have a variation of fronts and a splitting of forces, it weakens you and weakens your response and also confuses one. And so that's intriguing that China is in alliance with Hamas, and China's very much in alliance with Iran and supporting them. Not only that, but the American ally Qatar supplies $20 million every month to Hamas, and Turkey, uh, which is a US ally and NATO member, Turkey supports Hamas extravagantly, and the Turkish government has enthusiastically endorsed what Hamas has done. So for Joe Biden to say we have Israel's back is actually very hypocritical. Yes, they do have Israel's back, and they are supplying Israel with a lot of weapons and a lot of foreign aid. In fact, the United, the, um, United States can say they give more foreign aid to the state of Israel than to all other countries combined. In fact, you can go further than that. The state of Israel has received more foreign aid than all other countries in the world combined have in all of history. And the state of Israel has only been in existence since 1948. But they've received more foreign aid than all other countries combined have ever received foreign aid. So the foreign aid to Israel exceeds everyone else's foreign aid. And that 
you can go back as far as you want in history. But the U.S. is also supplying the enemies of Israel, such as Hamas, by supporting Qatar and Iran and supporting Turkey, who are all supporting Hamas. Hamas also manages to collect $27 million in taxes from the Palestinian people in Gaza because they have been elected since 2007 to be their municipal um, uh, representatives, effectively. Now, Hamas has only 30,000 terrorists, 30,000 terrorists, but an arsenal of 7,000 rockets and over 300 anti-tank missiles, which would make a ground offensive of the IDF very costly indeed. And the IDF has got 1.8 million people they can call up, and they've already called up 300,000. Um, so, of course, it's no contest in one sense in terms of weaponry, in terms of um, support and finances. Uh, the Israel Defense Force is very well funded, extremely well equipped. They've got over 3,000 tanks, one of the biggest tank fleets in the world. And uh, so you can say in this war, Hamas started this war. Israel is determined to finish this war, but caught in the middle are the ordinary people of Israel and Palestine. And there's something very sinister going on behind the scenes. And the Gazans are going to pay a high price for the provocative atrocities of Hamas. There's no doubt that Hamas wanted to provoke great outrage. They filmed themselves invading Israel. They filmed themselves doing atrocities. They filmed themselves kidnapping human shields, bringing them back across the border which is almost an invitation for a ground offensive because how are you going to get those uh, human shields, those hostages back? It's almost uh, provoking and enticing and daring Israel to invade Gaza, which of course would increase the casualties on all sides too. So senior Hamas leaders live abroad, by the way. They live in luxury in Turkey and Qatar. And so the senior Hamas leaders do not suffer the consequence of their irresponsible policies like the common people in Gaza do. So I think as we look at the real story of terrorism in the Middle East, we need to consider uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, link in this and their alliance and their roles in fin financing and funding Iran and Iran's major role in funding Hamas and American allies like Qatar and Turkey funding it. But I think we should also look at the historic roots of terrorism. Some people trace the history of terrorism to the Sakari Zealots in first century Judea. The term terrorism, though, was first used to describe the actions of the Jacobins during the reign of terror in the French Revolution. So the, the concept of terrorism might go back to the Zealots in first century Judaism, where they would walk up to Romans and Hebrews who were perceived to be collaborators with the Romans and stab them in the marketplace and create chaos. In fact, the Sakari zealots led to such chaos that they led to the war with, with um, Rome that ended up with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And of course, the suicide of all the zealots up in Masada when the Romans surrounded them and broke in rather than surrender. And intriguingly enough, Israeli Defense Force officers are commissioned on Masada, um, on the very place where the entire zealot survivors committed suicide, killing their own wives and children in a suicide pact, biggest mass suicide in history on Masada. And that's where IDF officers are commissioned with the whole idea of we will never surrender and um, we'd rather commit suicide and kill all our own people than, than allow the enemy to take us alive. And so uh, that symbolism of Masada is also there. 
But the term terrorist only dates back to the French Revolution, 1789 to 1793, and Maximilien Robespierre advocated terrorism as a tool of the revolution. In 1795, Edmund Burke denounced the French Revolution Jacobins as letting thousands of hellhounds called terrorists loose on the people of France. And the anarchists in Russia, using the French revolutionaries as their inspiration, targeted and assassinated leaders, including czars, for what they called armed propaganda. The other people who pioneered terrorism were the Irish Republican Army, first called Irish Republican Brotherhood, founded in 1858, and the IRA initiated bombing campaigns to achieve their political aims. Well, if you want to get a definition of terrorism, some people say it's very hard to define terrorism. No, it's not hard to define terrorism at all. In fact, Webster's Dictionary of the English Language, 1828, defines terrorism as the use of violence and threats to intimidate or coerce for political purposes. And a terrorist is defined as a person who uses or advocates terrorism, such as an agent or partisan of the revolutionary tribunal during the reign of terror in France. So that's all from the Webster's Dictionary of 1828. To terrorize is defined in Webster's Dictionary as to dominate or coerce by intimidation, to produce widespread fear by acts of violence as bombings. So when you get the American and British government saying it's very difficult to define terrorism, no, it's not difficult at all. Webster's Dictionary defines these terms very clearly. But as many government policies would fit the dictionary definition of terrorism, they prefer to pretend that there's a problem defining the terms. Basically, it's hypocrisy. When we bomb civilians, it's called strategic bombing or saturation bombing. But when our enemies bomb us, it's called terrorism. So I think many of our listeners would be intrigued and shocked to know that the Special Operations Executive, or SOE, formed by order of British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, is the primary inspiration and model for terrorism today. 22nd of July 1940, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill ordered the formation of uh, SAE or Special Operations Executive, and his directive was set Europe ablaze. And for this purpose, the SAE was used to conduct espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance to aid or to start local resistance movements. And it was modeled on the Irish Republican Army. The SAE employed or controlled over 13,000 people at the height of the Second World War. They were known as Churchill Secret Army, the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, or the Baker Street Irregulars, because SAE headquarters was located in Baker Street in, in London. Now, ostensibly, SAE was meant to focus on countries occupied by Axis forces, Italy and Germany in particular. But SAE actually operated or assassinated in neutral territories like Sweden, Spain, and Switzerland as well. Hugh Dalton, the Ministry of Economic Warfare, was appointed to take responsibility for the SAE. And as Dalton left Prime Minister Winston Churchill's study, he was instructed, now set Europe ablaze. And that they certainly did. I was invited to speak in England in 2014 on the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War. And I went to the Imperial War Museum, which had a massive display on the front, on the bottom floor, the ground floor on uh, First World War, as you'd expect. But the second floor, I also saw a special exhibit to SAE, Special Operations Executive, and I found it intriguing to see how they really pioneered terrorism, uh, which has been modeled by Islamic and communist terrorists throughout the world uh, since the Second World War. Now, 
SAE was concealed behind names like Joint Technical Board, Inter-Service Research Bureau. They produced handbooks and pamphlets on guerrilla warfare, terrorism and assassination sabotage. And the weapons were developed from what was called Churchill's Toy Shop. Major General Colin Gubbins, director of SAE from August 1943, published a book um, where he, on, on his work in SAE, and he had huge experience of clandestine operations. Well, General Gubbins declared that he put into practice in SAE many of the lessons he had learned from the Irish Republican Army during the Irish War of Independence. And so there's a major general running SAE, director of SAE, who claims that they deliberately focused their strategies, tactics, and aims on the Irish Republican Army, the worst terrorist organization in the world at that time. And the aims and the objectives of SAE revolved around sabotage and subverting countries under the control of the enemies. And one of the early high-profile operations was Operation Anthropoid, the assassination of the governor of Moravia and Bohemia, Reinhard Heinrich, in Prague. And this had disastrous consequence for everyone involved. You know, Bohemia and Moravia were actually very peaceful, and the people living there were uh, basically isolated from a lot of the effects of the war, They're living in peace. And the whole aim of Churchill's SAE was to create absolute havoc, and they did. They fomented hatred and conflict between the population and the occupiers to force access to expand manpower and resources to maintain control of a territory that they occupied. And it was basically sowing and mobilizing murder and mayhem. They created secret armies to sow murder and mayhem behind the lines. And these underground armies became the model for the Marxist liberation movements, which tore Africa apart during the years of decolonization. The terrorists that I and my friends and neighbors suffered under in Rhodesia were inspired in many ways by SOE. In fact, ZANU and ZAPU were modeling a lot of their terrorism campaigns against the whites and the blacks of Rhodesia on Special Operations Executive Tactics, which was glamorized by British movies during and after the Second World War. And the KGB built on these examples of SAE and arming, training, and fomenting terrorism campaigns throughout the world, including the Muslim terrorists who continue to plague civilized society to this day, including Hamas, who are modeling a lot of their campaigns on exactly what the uh, Allies did with SAE and the Americans did through OSS. Well, Special Operations Executive developed a wide range of explosive devices for sabotage, limpet mines, shape charges, time fuses, the time pencil to give a saboteur time to escape after setting a charge, relied on crushing an internal vial of acid, which then corroded the retaining wire. And SAE pioneered the use of plastic explosives, which could be cut and shaped to perform any kind of demolition task. And as plastic explosives like Semtex is inert, it requires a powerful detonator to cause it to explode. Therefore, it's generally safe to transport and to store. Well, SAE used plastic explosives and everything from car bombs to exploding rats. They literally bought a whole lot of rats, killed them, and then put explosives in the rats so that these rats could be used for explosives. SAE experimented with lubricants laced with grinding materials to introduce into vehicle oil systems, railway wagon axle boxes, and then incendiary devices disguised as innocuous objects like blackjack, which was coal, which some of the coal was actually an explosive. So you can imagine how this destroyed locomotives and fireplaces. 
as people shovel some coal into the fireplace or into the locomotive. Little did they know that there's an SAE-designed bomb in some of that coal, blackjack as they called it, which then would cause massive explosions. And then they also made landmines disguised as cow dung. And SAE even revived the most evil of medieval devices, the caltrop, which is a, a, does, it's designed to cripple horses and infantry. Whichever way you throw it, there'll always be a spike pointing upwards. And so it's multiple direction spikes. And you throw them on the ground, these caltrops, crippled horses, crippled civilians and, and any pedestrians. And now the idea was to burst tires of vehicles or injure foot soldiers. They also produced crossbows to shoot incendiary and explosive devices and bolts and even poisoned arrows. They produced exploding pens, guns concealed in tobacco pipes, all kinds of exotic devices, which doubtless inspired a lot of the James Bond movie um, exotic types of weaponry, which uh, we now associate with 007. Well, SAE supplied Marxist resistance movements throughout Europe and Southeast Asia and China with thousands of tons of military weapons and explosives. And numerous military leaders were horrified at the terror tactics being employed by SAE. And there's a lot of records of British military leaders complaining, generals and others, that this is unethical, uh, this is counterproductive, and this could cause us tremendous trouble down the road. And many saw the danger that if we do this, what if some of the people that we rule start to use these tactics against us? So even before it started to be done by the Mau Mau in Kenya or by the Simbas in the Congo or by Zanu and Zapu in Rhodesia, uh, there were British military officials warning, this is what's going to happen if we don't watch out. And of course, the Viet Cong and others. And SAE had a practice of supporting Marxist revolutionaries like Tito's partisans in the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. Even before the Tehran conference in 1943, SAE stopped supporting the nationalists and the royalist governments in exile, for example, of Mihailovic in Yugoslavia, and they channeled most British support to helping the communist partisans of Joseph Bronze Tito. And also in Greece, SAE and OSS operatives favored the communist LS guerrilla forces, effectively provided the weapons which the communists used during the Greek Civil War following the Second World War. In Albania, both the British SAE and the American OSS agents consistently support the communist partisans of Envahoya, who turned Albania into the most brutal, atheistic, Stalinistic dictatorship after the war, wiping out every minister, destroying every church, and crushing every form of Christian expression. And Albania became the most oppressive country in the world. And that's thanks to SAE and OSS, who only support the communist partisans and not the nationalists. The British military historian John Keegan wrote, we must recognize that our response to the scourge to terrorism is compromised by what we did through SAE. The justification that we had no other means at that time of striking back at the enemy is exactly the arguments used by the Red Brigades, the Biedermeinhof gang, the PFLP, the IRA, and every other half-articulate terrorist organization. SAE besmirched Britain. And that's from one of the finest British military historians, John Keegan, well, when British military officials objected on moral and military grounds to SAE fomenting terrorism and revolution, they said they were of no practical use in the larger military picture, led to a large unnecessary loss of life, provoked harsh crackdowns. The British Prime Minister Winston Churchill responded, that's the whole intention. They are trying to 
provoke harsh crackdowns, which requires the death of lots of civilians. That's the best way to motivate the people to fight against their enemies. And so SE was deliberately to provoke enemy crackdowns on civilian population and to deteriorate relations in the occupied countries. And so when people say, what does Hamas have to gain? Why is Hamas doing this? Hamas is doing exactly what the British did through SAE and the Americans did through OSS. Terrorism, assassinations, high-profile terror attacks behind the lines, sabotage, and provoke a reaction, provoke an overreaction, hopefully. The Secret War, written by Max Hastings, quotes the British High Command Generals as concluding that all the expense, sacrifices, and achievements of SAE did little or nothing to alter the military situation and did little or nothing to alter or secure military victory. But SAE's terror tactics cost an enormous amount of civilian lives by fomenting terrorism in order to provoke enemy reaction. And that's exactly what we've just seen in the terrorism in the Middle East. It actually was started by SAE and by OSS, modeling themselves on the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, who in some ways were related to the French revolutionary terrorists and to some degree even the zealots, the Sakari in first century Palestine. So the result is vast devastation to the infrastructure of Europe, the loss of countless innocent lives for no strategic advantage. And I'm quoting here from The Secret War by Max Hastings, which has got to be the definitive um, historical study on guerrilla warfare and SAE and special operations during the Second World War. I think of Isaiah 28, verse 15. We have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Well, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, which is the forerunner of the CIA in America, was formed on the 13th of June, 1942, as a wartime agency of the United States, launched on the express orders of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, an FDR tasked Colonel William Donovan, also known as Wild Bill Donovan, to be coordinator of the information. That was his first job, Office of Coordinative Information, COI. And then out of that grew OSS, out of which grew the CIA. And they were established by presidential order for propaganda, espionage, and subversive activities behind enemy lines. At the height of World War II, OSS employed 24,000 people. In the secret war, by Max Hastings records, William Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, had no problem promoting known communists to every level of OSS. And this included Duncan Lee, his personal assistant, who later proved to be not just a communist, but an NKVD agent for the Soviet Union. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Well, OSS produced silenced pistols, Beano grenades that explode upon impact, explosives disguised as lumps of coal, tasteless poison tablets that could be slipped into water, tea and wine, cigarettes laced with poison. And again and again, they did what Isaiah 59 verse 13 says, in transgressing and lying against the Lord, in departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. They also engaged in biological warfare. They sought to spread anthrax amongst German troops. They sought to hide capsules of mustard gas and flowers to cause blindness amongst generals in the high command headquarters, who devised iniquity and evil in their hearts. At morning light they practiced because of the power of their hands. Micah 2 verse 1. Well, Stanley Lovell of OSS declared, it was my policy to consider any method, whatever might aid the war, however unorthodox or untried. 
and Max Hastings and the Secret War documents how OSS played a decisive role in ensuring that the communist partisans gained control over Yugoslavia and that Mao Zedong's People's Liberation Army dominated post-war China. And the OSS was the predecessor of the modern Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, which has toppled governments, assassinated leaders, armed and funded, trained Muslim and Marxist terrorists, fomented revolutions, including launching the catastrophic Arab Spring of 2011, and ISIS, which was actually launched by American initiative with the aid of Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And ISIS has devastated centuries-old Christian communities, stimulate waves of millions of Muslim refugees from the Middle East who are destabilizing and threatening Europe like a demographic time bomb. They plan evil things in the hearts. They continually gather together for war, Psalm 140, verse 2. Well, as a missionary who has concentrated for over 40 years on serving persecuted Christians and working in conflict areas, I've worked in 38 countries and been involved in eight wars and three revolutions. I've been exposed to Marxist and Muslim terrorist groups, and I've engaged them in conversation, discussion, debate, and arguments, including in mosques and terrorist bases, on their radio programs, and in their homes. So from my observation, terrorists are motivated by fanatical hatred, intense rage, deep-seated anger, as well as the pragmatic prospect of attaining political power through terrorist tactics. They're also motivated by greed, perceived opportunities for revenge and looting, Alas, for power, and frequently they even guided and motivated by ignorance. Now, of course, many of these terrorists that I've met would quote from the writings of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin or from Mao Zedong or even Voltaire, Rousseau, and Robespierre for some kind of philosophical support for their violent tactics and their revolutionary aims. And the Muslims will quote from the Quran and from the Hadith of Muhammad as the authoritative foundation and inspiration for their jihad. And those Irish Republican advocates of terror that I've interacted with they have evidenced a mixture of Catholicism and communism in their deranged thinking to justify bombings of both military and civilian targets and for crippling Catholic apostates, as they call them, for collaborating with the enemy by kneecapping them, either shooting them in the kneecap or drilling through kneecaps with an electric drill. And that's been specifically a target that IRA terrorists have used against Catholics who have uh, compromised somewhere, which include Catholic girls who have dated a British officer or a Royal Ulster Constabulary's policeman or something like that. And so crippling people is one, it's like the ANC in South Africa have used uh, necklacing, burning people out of an automobile tower and pouring gasoline over them. That's their terror tactic intimidation, which is used for their own people to keep them in line. Well, IRA have used kneecapping. Now, obviously, we must understand our enemy. If we want to defeat terrorism, we need to understand, well, Irish Republicanism and Catholicism inspired most of the terrorist attacks in Britain, from Guy Fawkes' failed 5th of November, 1605 gunpowder plot, remember, remember the 5th of November, um, through the Irish Republican Brothers' bombings of the 1860s and the IRA's S plan, or sabotage plan, of the 1930s and 1940s, to the parcel bombs, car bombs, pub bombings, targeting of soldiers and civilians, economic targets like Harrods Department, uh, store, the Brighton Hotel, the Hyde Park bombings, the stock exchange bombings. Although most assume that the IRA was primarily motivated by republicanism and Catholicism, there were also strong Marxist, revolutionary and anarchist elements to the IRA terrorism campaign. But since the Iranian embassy siege of 1980 and the Pan Am Flight 103 Lockerbie disaster of 
December 1988, Islamic terrorism came to Britain. And then since the 7-7 or 7th of July 2005 bombing, the IRA's monopoly on bombs in the UK was taken over by Islamic jihadists. So you need to understand the Quranic teachings on jihad and Islamic history of terrorism. I found it intriguing going to the Imperial War Museum in 2014 to see that the Secret Service exhibit um, showed that the real enemies of the realm have always been either the IRA or Islamic jihadists. And yet there's not one single James Bond movie that I can recall that ever focused on either the IRA or on Islamic jihad as the real enemy. They preferred some kind of fictitious specter and some businessman or some journalist as the um, source of the threat to the realm. And it's interesting that the makers of the 007 movies have been too cowardly to ever use any of the real enemies of the realm um, as the targets, as the antagonists in any of their films or books. So interesting facts ruin a good narrative. So how do we defeat terrorism? I'm convinced that to defeat terrorism, we need to ensure that it never pays. We need to ensure that terrorism is counterproductive. Every time you compromise with a terrorist or negotiate with a terrorist or give in to the demands of terrorists or pander to the agenda of the terrorist, you greatly encourage him and you weaken your own position and you expose your country and your people to more and far worse terrorist attacks in the future. So General Pinochet of Chile, he understood that terrorism is armed propaganda. Therefore, in Chile, General Pinochet deprived the terrorists of publicity. He put military people in charge of the newspapers and the TV. And without media coverage, terrorism in Chile died, like a fire deprived of oxygen. Even a train could get derailed. It wouldn't make the news. Now, the Malayan emergency was another success story in fighting terrorism. The British and Commonwealth forces, including the Rhodesian Sea Squadron, enlisted the help of the local population by offering very generous rewards for information leading to the capture of gangsters or terrorists who were disturbing the peace. And those people who handed in terrorist weapons received very generous cash payouts, which was a lot more cost effective than a lot of other things militaries do. So offering a bounty like how the West was tamed by major um, rewards offered on the heads of known gangsters and criminals, you privatize the um, uh, securing of the, of the peace. And so protected villages were also established to remove the support that insurgents had demanded from the locals. And this way, the security forces in Malaya separated the water from the fish and the insurgency died out. Mao Zedong said that the population is the water in which the gorillas, the fish, can operate. And so you separate the population from the terrorists, you separate the water from the fish and the fish dies out. Or in the case of the Malayan emergency, the insurgency died out. So how do we defeat terrorism? Stop supporting those who support terrorism. We need to stop supporting the states, the ideologies, and the religions that inspire, fuel, and mobilize terrorism today. Historically, those who have supported terrorism have included revolutionary France, Serbia, who started the First World War, uh, with their terrorist-supported anarchists who murdered the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife in Sarajevo, the Soviet Union, the biggest supporter of terrorism in many ways, Red China, Turkey, Qatar, Iran, and Saudi Arabia today. We must stop supporting those who support terrorism, and that includes Red China, uh, who is getting so much aid and trade from America that's enabling them to aid and support and fund terrorists in the Middle East, amongst other places. 
we must stop destabilizing and overthrowing those states that are resisting terrorism. Historically, this has included when the Allies joined forces with Stalin's Soviet Union, the greatest sponsor of terrorism in history, in waging warfare against the two greatest opponents to communism and terrorism in history. The Second World War was fought against Germany and Japan, who were the greatest opponents and obstacles to communism and terrorism, and the ones who were restraining and preventing the Soviet Union from expanding. So by doing the work of the communists, by removing their uh, opponents, the most effective opponents, who ever killed more communists in Germany? Um, think of what the Wehrmacht achieved in the Eastern Front. Um, and so, and Japan was defeating communism in China. And so by getting the West to get rid of these countries that also didn't have Rothschild banks, but um, uh, they were also fighting communism, preventing communism from expanding, they enabled communism to expand. By betraying the nationalist Chinese in the hands of Mao Zedong's People's Liberation Army, which is what the OSS did, and by betraying Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, and Albania into the hands of the Marxist revolutionary terrorists, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill at, at Yalta betrayed the whole of Eastern Europe, 100 million Christians and 15 nations behind the Iron Curtain. And then you think of Jimmy Carter betraying the Shah's Aron into the hands of the Ayatollah Khomeini's radical Islamic revolutionaries, the same ones funding Hamas today. The betrayal of Batista's Cuba into the hands of Castro's communists, the betrayal of Nicaragua into the hands of the Sandinistas, and the betrayal under Jimmy Carter of Rhodesia, uh, my home country, where I was brought up, into the hands of Robert Mugabe's Marxist Zonu thugs who are being supported by Red China, but betraying South Africa and Southwest Africa to terrorism and um, to the ANC thugs of Mandela, um, and the targeting of Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Gaddafi's Libya, Mubarak's Egypt, Assad's Syria during the Arab Spring under Obama. In each case, the result has been a far worse regime, greatly increased suffering, mass deaths, escalating terrorist threats and attacks. So if we would just stop funding those who fund terrorism and stop betraying those who, who resist terrorism, the world would be in a better place. We also recognize that recent Western attempts to combat terrorism has been counterproductive. Historically, with the destabilizing collapse or overthrow of these countries, which were resisting communism or Islamic terrorism, the result, the cause of international communism or Islamic jihad has accelerated. The number of terrorist attacks against the West has exponentially increased. I mean, just think about the chaos caused by overthrowing the Shah of Iran in, in, and handing over Iran to the hands of the Islamic crazies of the Ayatollah Khomeini, or the chaos caused by betraying Rhodesia or South Africa. And uh, so former MI6 agent Alistair Crook observed, Saudi Arabia was founded with terrorism and has been a primary supporter of Islamic terrorism to this day. The founder of Wahhabianism, Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab, argued that all Muslims must pledge allegiance to a single Muslim leader, king or caliph, and those who would not conform should be killed. And the Wahhabians considered the Shiite and Sufi Muslims as apostates worthy of death. And Abin al-Wahhab found protection under uh, Chief Ibn Saud, after whom Saudi Arabia is named. And from the very beginning, Ibn Saud and Abd al-Wahhab used terrorism to instill fear and to force submission upon all those that they conquered. In 1801, they massacred thousands, including men, women, and children, in Karbala in Iraq. They destroyed shrines, including that of Imam Hussein, 
the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, who was murdered. The British official Francis Warden recorded that over 5,000 inhabitants of Karbala were massacred by Wahhabians. They seized Mecca with similar violence and destroyed centuries of Islamic architecture near the Grand Mosque. And ISIS is a modern incarnation of Wahhabianism that has dominated Saudi Arabia for over two centuries. During the Second World War, President Franklin D. Roosevelt invited King Abd al-Aziz aboard the USS Quincy, docked in the Suez Canal, where they cemented a secret oil for security pact between America and Saudi Arabia. The Saudis guaranteed American access to Saudi oil in exchange for the U.S. pledge to provide military assistance and training to Saudi Arabia. And Islamic scholars have noted the ideology of the Saudi regime is the ideology of ISIS. Wahhabian Islam is in fully in sync with ISIS. And the House of Saud has exploited the same pernicious form of militant Islam under the United States watch and with their funding. Some American generals like Wesley Clark observed, Saudi Arabia can't be exploiting extremism and at the same time ask the United States to protect it. But that's what's happening. Even the United States State Department acknowledged in December 2009, Saudi Arabia was the most significant source of funding to terrorist groups worldwide. But Saudi Arabia is a key purchase of American weapons. They invest in U.S. government bonds. They act as a proxy for covert U.S. actions in the region. So the U.S. government chooses to turn a blind eye to Saudi Arabia's sponsoring of much of the murder and mayhem in the Muslim Middle East. Uh, head of British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, reported on a conversation with Prince Bandir bin Sultan, uh, who is the former Saudi ambassador in Washington and head of Saudi intelligence, that just prior to 9-11, he was told, the time is not far off in the Middle East. <coughs> when it'll literally be God to help the Shia. More than a billion Sunnis have had enough of them. And Sir Dielov said it was a chilling comment that I remember very well indeed. So <clears throat> there's a religious component to this. The Sunnis and Wahhabians against the Shiites and the Sufis in the Middle East is behind a lot of the terrorism as well. The previous head of MR6 reported he doesn't doubt the substantial sustained funding from donors in Saudi Arabia and Qatar have played a central role in the surge of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, which led to the deaths of how many thousands of people? Of the 9-11 hijackers, 15 were Saudi Arabians. Bin Laden is Saudi Arabian. Most of the private donors who support a lot of terrorism today are Saudi Arabians. The Arab Spring of 2011 was sponsored by donors in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, and the United Arab Emirates. And Turkey has played a very major role supporting ISIS and al-Nusra, yet they are American um, allies and members of NATO for that matter. The refugee crisis stimulated by the wars in the Middle East are threatening to destabilize Europe itself. The beheadings and crucifixions that ISIS have done publicly are a mark of Saudi Wahhabianism. Of the hundreds of people executed in Saudi Arabia in recent years, almost all have been done by uh, execution by beheadings. And uh, all of the countries that the United States government engages in regime change, like Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya, descended into brutal chaos. One of the great perversities of America's so-called war on terrorism is that fundamentalist Islamic terrorist jihadists have flourished as a direct consequence. The religionofpeace.com website has documented over 44,000 deadly terror attacks carried out by Islamic terrorists since September 11, 2001, and America's war on terrorism that's meant to end terrorism, but in fact has only 
poured gasoline on the fuel on the flames. And truth and history can expose propaganda. To defeat terrorism, we need to counter the propaganda and guilt manipulation campaigns with truth and real history. You can only fight an ideology with a better ideology. And lies must be exposed by facts. And truth does not fear investigation. Terrorists are violent criminals. They're cowardly bullies. And they tend to flee when they meet determined resistance, like the St. James Massacre of 25th of July 1993, where one of my friends and one of our missionaries stopped the attack by shooting at the terrorists who then fled. Armed citizens save lives. Terrorists prefer unarmed victims. Ensuring that the general citizenry have the right and freedom to obtain firearms and training will do more to end sporadic acts of terrorism than anything else. When a high percentage of a country is armed, trained and ready to resist, terrorism must fail. If you want peace, you must prepare for war. Switzerland is a good example of an armed citizenry providing an effective deterrent to attack. The dooms of King Alfred, Magna Carta of 1215, the English Bill of Rights of 1689 all guarantee the right of all free men to keep and bear arms for self-defense. And it's time for these historic rights to be restored. The scripture says in Nehemiah 4.14, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Um, we've, we've got a few more minutes. Let me have a look at the clock. Um, our last show a couple of weeks ago was on Erlo Stegen, who sadly passed away. And you've since attended his funeral service. What can you tell us about this? It was the most incredible event, like a state funeral for the kingdom of KwaZulu. And the Zulu royal family was there and they gave Erlo Stegen the royal I yet salute. Uh, the only other person I know to ever get that was Cecil John Rhodes, uh, where the Manabili gave the Zulu Bayete royal salute at the grave on World, uh, World's View for Cecil Rhodes' uh, funeral. But uh, we had two rows of just chiefs, Zulu chiefs, sitting with their headdresses at the funeral service, 12,000 people at the funeral, massive logistical operation, over 100 police traffic officers and security officers there, there were so many um, high-profile leaders from mayors, premiers, uh, leaders, even a, an ex-president was there. And uh, the uh, the extraordinary thing about this funeral was the man who gave the sermon at Erlo Stegen's funeral was Erlo Stegen. They found an excellent video, um, which was put on the big screens, of Erlo Stegen preaching on the resurrection uh, when he expounded Mark 16 uh, some years ago. And... Uh, it couldn't have been a more appropriate sermon. It was the best. And uh, I heard the general who was overseeing the police, um, um, uh, overseeing the security at this event, reporting back to headquarters saying, you won't believe who's preaching at Erlo Stegen's funeral. Erlo Stegen is preaching at his own funeral. I've been to many funerals. I've never heard the man who's died speaking at his own funeral before. And uh, that, of course, was quite remarkable. But um, the amount of people who testified... And it was an out. It was an eight-hour service, eight-hour funeral service. Can you imagine? And so many people stood up to speak of what Erlo Stegen had done for them, done for their community. Uh, this German missionary, who ministered for over seventy years in KwaZulu, he changed so many lives, and his ministry has been so greatly revived. There's such a great revival. 
um, bringing millions of Zulus to Christ, a phenomenal uh, operation. Uh, the amount of things people pointed out and said, you know, South Africa would be at civil war, but for the work of Ulus Stegen and bringing Zulus to Christ, the Zulus uh, have a great military heritage and they're very warlike people and only the gospel uh, sort of tamed them and channeled them into a more constructive direction. But this is a person who's really transformed lives and, and made history through preaching of the gospel and through his um, phenomenal missionary work on the ground. It's been a privilege to know them and to be at that event, a real historic event. I've been posting pictures of it on my Facebook page. So if anyone goes onto either Peter Hammond or Frontline Fellowship Facebook page, they'll see quite a lot on the funeral and the preparation of the logistics. There's a big overflow tent that looked like a huge Zeppelin. Um, I've also put on our website, the Frontline Mission SA.org website, the funeral, the whole funeral, the sermon, just the sermon, uh, the memorial service, which I did earlier, and a whole lot of other links uh, and pictures, articles on the event and uh, of the whole family of Erla Stegen. His six daughters and 25 grandchildren all sang in a choir at the event. You know, what a privilege to have your whole family living in your home and around uh, working in your mission. So what a tribute to Erla Stegen that his 25 grandchildren and six daughters all there at the funeral, all living in his home, all um, loyal to the message that he preached and the work that he began. Thank you, Peter. And before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, certainly. Um, www.frontlinemissionsa.org is our website. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za. And I've written about my interactions with terrorists in my book, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, where over the last 40 years, it's got quite a lot of conversations with terrorists. It's got a lot of... Uh, atrocities that I've documented of that terrorists have done on the fields in Mozambique and Angola and Sudan, Congo and, and Zimbabwe. And I've um, spoken about how we've been winning terrorists to Christ and what we can do to undermine terrorism. So that you'll find useful, uh, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. And I've also written Security and Survival Handbook, particularly to help churches and individuals and missions protect themselves from terrorism and how to protect, how to set up a security committee, what scenarios to consider with case studies like St. James Massacre, home invasions and Switzerland, case studies of what we can do to strengthen the security of our home, our church and our mission and what steps we can take to make ourselves or our mission or home a less attractive target for these terrorists. Thank you, Peter. And that concludes today's show, folks. You have been listening to Dr. Peter Hammond's presentation, The Real Story of Terrorism in the Middle East. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll catch you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.